All of you that are visiting with us, we're glad you're here and hope and pray that God will speak to your heart today. It's an interesting week. Sad, some things that happened yesterday. It's amazing how God's timing and how he prepares our hearts to receive and God others the, uh, to, to speak. If you've looked at my title this morning for the message, it's uh, rather timely, I think. Our nation is divided. I've told you it's in trouble. It's divided. And no house that is divided can stand for very long. My prayer is that we'll learn some things today that maybe will help us to be more like Christ. I, uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I had good, loving, caring, protecting parents, but they weren't saved. And uh, my dad was a very wise man. I've shared a lot about my dad with you. My, my father told me never to go out and start a fight. But he did tell me that I needed to learn how to defend myself. I knew that if I started a fight, and especially if I was on school grounds, I was going to be in some big, big trouble. <laughs> well, when I was in the sixth grade, we had a bully in our school that had a friend, and together they loved to pick on people. He was a little guy. His name was Tommy Maddox. And he was smaller than me, but he had a large friend named Ronnie Hicks. Ronnie was bigger than the two of us put together. Ronnie was the bully and, or excuse me, uh, Tommy was the bully and Ronnie was the executioner, executioner or the enforcer. Um, they, they loved to intimidate all of us kids going to the school. Well, it was... Uh, Almost summertime, we were getting ready to start our Little League baseball season. Our teams had been picked. We'd all been given our uniforms, and, and I had my brand-new team-logoed hat. And uh, I was proud of that thing. I wore it to school one day, and Tommy Maddox snuck up behind me, snatched it off my head, and threw it in a mud hole. And I'm talking about a mud hole. In Florida, they have mud holes down there. And, and so it instantly it was soaking wet and it was covered with mud. And uh, the whole reason he did it, he wanted to pick a fight with me. He wanted to get me in trouble. And, and he just kind of bowed up in my face and said, what are you going to do about it? Well, <laughs> I had to think about it for just a minute. I, I knew that if I got in trouble on school grounds, I was going to be in trouble with my dad. But I... I knew I needed to defend myself, so I, I said to Tommy, we're, we're not going to fight on, on campus, but after school, I'll meet you across the road. And uh, he told me, okay. And he, then he told me what he was going to do to me when I got over there. <laughs> and I, I remember being uneasy about the situation, and quite honestly, I was a little bit afraid. Uh, I wasn't worried about Tommy, but Ronnie was a big dude. And... And I wasn't really a fighter. I wasn't a lover then either, but I wasn't a fighter. <laughs> I just didn't want to get in trouble. And, and I certainly uh, didn't want to disappoint my father either. He needed me to defend myself. Well, when the, when the bell rang, uh, I made my way out of the classroom, started out the sidewalk, and 
started across the road, and sure enough, there was Tommy. And so I walked over to where he was at, and I'm, I'm rather confused because Ronnie's nowhere to be found. That was a little bit scary. So we kind of, you know, like two chickens bowing up against each other, and I kind of, we kind of bowed up at each other, and I got my, I got my back to the woods. I thought that's the best way to defend myself, and and out of nowhere, uh, Ronnie came out of the woods, grabbed my arms, pulled my arms back, and held me, and and Tommy hit me right in the jaw, and out went my lights. It was a one punch fight, and it was all over, or at least. Tommy thought it was over. A couple of weeks later, we're out on the playground playing again, and I caught Tommy all by himself. And his back was to me, and it just so happened that I had a wooden baseball bat in my hand. And, and I caught him right across his shoulder blades and just knocked him to the ground and stepped over him and dared him to get up. And you know what? He didn't get up. I don't understand that. He just didn't get up. But, you know, about all I remember after that was that Tommy and I became really good friends. I never had any more trouble with him. We went all the way through school. We played a lot of games together. We, we did a lot of things together. I went to his house. He went to my house. We were, we were really good friends after that event. But I... I was reading scripture this week and, and I had to ask myself this question and you'll see in a minute. Was I justified in getting even with him? That's the question that I had to ask myself and, and I asked that based on what Jesus said in Matthew chapter five. Look with me at verse 38. Jesus said, you have heard that the law of Moses says if an eye is injured, injure the eye of the person who did it. If a tooth gets knocked out, knock out the tooth of the person who did it. But I say, and this is Jesus' words, don't resist an evil person. If you were slapped on the right cheek, then turn the other two. If you're ordered to court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat as well. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles and give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Interesting words. What did Jesus mean? What was he trying to teach? When you read that whole section of scripture, it seems to be competing against each other. And quite honestly, I don't think I've ever preached from this passage of scripture in all my ministry. So I've done a lot of reading this week, trying to figure out what Jesus's intent was in teaching this passage. I read from MacArthur who said one element of the great American philosophy of life is that we have all, we all have certain inalienable, inalienable rights. I'll get that word out in a minute. Whew, that's a tough one. Among, uh, among the most important privileges that our Declaration of Independence espouses is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In our day, the number of rights claimed have greatly expanded. Movements have developed for uh, civil rights and women's rights and children's rights and workers' rights and prisoners' rights and so on. He says, never has a society been more concerned about rights. We idolize the heroes who stand up for what is his no matter who may be offended. That self-interested, uh, 
self-protecting spirit characterizes fallen human nature. Above all else, sinful man wants what he thinks is his own. And in the process of protecting what is his own, he is also inclined to wreak considerable trouble on anyone who takes what is his. Then he writes these words. Retaliation, usually with interest, is the natural extension of selfishness. The danger is that inordinate concern for one's own right comes from inordinate selfishness and leads to inordinate lawlessness. When our supreme concern is getting and keeping what we think is rightfully ours, then whoever or whatever gets in our way, including the law, becomes expendable. Wherever self-interest dominates, justice is replaced with vengeance. You know, the Bible teaches that the perversion of self-interest is often the source of war and a lot of conflict, human conflict. James writes about that in the fourth chapter. He says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it the whole army of evil desires at war within you, that selfish interest that we have that's inside? He said, you want what you don't have. You scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous for what others have and you can't possess it, so you fight and quarrel to take it away from them. And yet, the reason you don't have what you want is that you don't ask God for it. You know, when human rights are put first, Godly righteousness usually suffers. When you study scripture, you find a lot of examples, but one of the best examples that I've found is the Apostle Paul. It is easy to see that no other person in scripture had their legitimate rights trampled upon more than the Apostle Paul. When he wrote his letter to the Corinthians, he wrote these words. He said, do I not have as much freedom as anyone else? Am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus our Lord with my own eyes? Isn't it because of my hard work that you're in the Lord? He says in verse four, don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? Don't we have the right to bring a Christian wife along with us as the other disciples and the Lord's brothers and Peter do? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have to work to support ourselves? In verse 12, he says, if you support others who preach to you, shouldn't you? Uh, shouldn't we have an, an even greater right to be supported? Yet we have never used this right. We would rather put up with anything than to put an obstacle in the way of the good news about Christ. So what is Paul saying there? I believe he's saying that his personal rights were not as important as the gospel or the kingdom of God or the rights of other people. He's saying that God's will and God's agenda had far more importance than his own personal rights, his own personal comfort or feelings or even pride. And that's what Paul believed and that's the way that Paul sought to live his life. Paul's goal was to live a selfless life, to live like Jesus. But like all of us, so many times he came up short. Like the last time that Paul was arrested in Jerusalem and brought before the Sanhedrin, Paul clearly fell short of his intent, what he wanted to do, his goal in life. He fell short of that. In Acts chapter 23, verse 1, you see that story. Paul was, uh, was being tried. It says that gazing intently at the high council, Paul began, brothers, 
I want always to live before God in a good conscience. Now, he's saying that, that I, 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 I'm, I'm going to be right with God. That's my goal. I, I always live that way. But notice verse 2. It says, instantly, Ananias the high priest commanded those close to Paul to slap him on the mouth, to insult his person or his character. That's what that slap was all about. But Paul said to him, God will slap you, you whitewashed wall. What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me struck like that? And then there were some people standing close to Paul who said to him, is that any way to talk to God's high priest? And Paul replied, I'm sorry, brothers. I, I didn't realize that he was a high priest. The scripture says you don't speak evil to anyone who rules you. Obviously, Paul didn't realize who he was speaking to. And when they told him it was a high priest, he quickly apologized. Why? Because he had no right to speak words of disrespect to one of God's chosen, to one of God's leaders. Folks, listen, Paul wasn't wrong in challenging the man's orders. For Ananias, the ruler of the Jews, was himself breaking the law. But Paul was wrong in returning an insult for an insult. Paul's anger momentarily got the best of him, and he retaliated with harsh words. He traded an insult for an insult, and that's what was wrong. It's very likely that Ananias was dressed in a way that Paul didn't recognize who he was. And even if he had, from a human standpoint, Paul would have been somewhat justified by what he said, but not how he said it. You see, Ananias was known for being a vile, arrogant, immoral man who continually profaned his office. So Paul was right in his effort to remind him that uh, to order a prisoner struck before he was convicted against, was against the Jewish law that he was uh, chosen and sworn to uphold. So Paul was right. But Paul's words showed no respect for the man's office and we're to be respectful. And they only lowered Paul to the sad and pathetic level that Ananias was on. And as a Christian, Paul needed to be bigger than that. He needed to be more like Jesus Christ. There were other times in scripture when Paul objected to the way that he was being treated and he made no apologies, there were no apologies that were necessary. In Acts chapter 16, you find an example of that. Paul had been arrested and beaten in Philippi. And it says in verse 35, the next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let those men go. So the jailer told Paul, he said, you and Silas are free to go. Just, just go in peace. <laughs> But look at verse 37, it said, Paul replied, they've beaten us publicly without a trial and they've jailed us and we're Roman citizens so now they want us to leave secretly or quietly without making a wave? Certainly not, Paul says. Let them come themselves to release us. When the police made their report, the city officials were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. And they, so they came to the jail and they apologized to them and they brought them out and they begged them, please leave our city. Don't, don't stir up anything, please. So there were even moments when Paul rightly objected to the harsh treatment that he received in Jerusalem, not just outside that city. You find in Acts 22 that after Paul had been 
arrested by the Roman commander to keep him from being killed by the Jews. The commander, it says in verse 24, brought Paul inside and ordered him lashed with whips to make him confess his crime. He wanted to find out why the crowd had become so furious. And as they tied Paul down to lash him, Paul said to the officer standing there, is it legal? Is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who have never been tried? Paul asked a very good question, a question that he was right to ask. And on this occasion, he offered no personal insult when he asked that question. Uh, later, Paul uh, spoke up in opposition when he was being treated by Festus and you know, tried before him. And it, it says in Acts chapter 25, verse 8, that after Festus had charged him, said Paul denied all the charges. He said, I'm not guilty. I have committed no crime against the Jewish laws or the temple or the Roman government. So then Festus, wanting to please the Jews, asked him, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there? And Paul replied, no, absolutely not. This is the official Roman court, so I ought to be tried here. You know very well that I'm not guilty. If I've done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if I am innocent, then neither you nor anyone else has a right to turn me over to these men to kill me. So I appeal to Caesar. Festus conferred with his advisors and then replied, very well, you've appealed to Caesar, then to Caesar you shall go. In other words, I'm going to kick this can a little bit further down the road so I don't have to deal with it. And I'm going to let Caesar deal with you. One of the authors that I read was Craig Bloomberg, and he said, it is critical to note that a willingness to forego one's personal rights and allow oneself to be insulted and imposed upon is not incompatible with a firm stand for matters of principle and for the rights of others. Dr. John MacArthur wrote, probably no part of the Sermon on the Mount has been so misinterpreted and misapplied as this passage, verse five, or chapter 5, verse 38 through 42. He says, it has been interpreted to mean that Christians are to be sanctimonious doormats. It has been used to promote pacifism, conscientious objection to the military and lawlessness and anarchy and a host of other positions that it does not support. Even the Roman author Tolstoy used this passage to form the theme for his novel, War and Peace, where he encourages the elimination of the police and the military and all other forms of authority so as to usher in a utopian society. Folks, without law and order, you have total anarchy. Where would Charlottesville have been yesterday had there not been some police? Think about it. Craig Bloomberg again says, in no sense does this passage require Christians to subject themselves or others to physical danger or abuse, nor does it bear directly on the pacifism just war debate. None of these commands can easily be considered absolute. All must be read against the historical background of the first century Judaism. You and I need to remember that Jesus has already commanded, clearly stated, that he did not come to eliminate the law in the smallest of way, uh, which 
It also includes respect for and obedience to human law and human authority. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to fulfill them. I assure you until heaven and earth disappear, even the smallest detail of God's law will remain until its purpose is achieved. You know, to properly understand this passage of scripture, you need to understand that many unrighteous things that the religious, uh, the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees included was this, and that was the, the insistence on personal rights and the right to commit vengeance. But Jesus, in this passage, greatly contrasts the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees versus the righteousness of God. And he also used this opportunity to reveal just how rabbinic tradition had twisted God's holy law to serve the selfish purpose of unholy men. If you look at verse 38, you see the specific principle of the Mosaic law. Let me read that for you again. Jesus quoted and said, you have heard that the law of Moses says, if an eye is injured, injure the eye of the person who did it. If a tooth gets knocked out, knock out the tooth of the person who did it. Folks, that is a direct quote from Exodus 21, from Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19. In fact, Exodus 21 verse 24 says, if an eye is injured, injure the eye of the person who did it. If a tooth gets knocked out, then knock out the tooth of the person who did it. Similarly, uh, the payment must be hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. In other words, if you injure somebody and you, you cause them to lose an eye, you're going to lose your eye. Or if you cause them to lose a foot, then you're going to lose your foot. Well, there were several basic reasons for this detailed principle being given to the people of God. And I want to give you those three. The first was to be a deterrent to any future crime. If you took someone's eye and then you lost your eye, you're going to think about it. <laughs> Deuteronomy 19 verse 18 says, they must be closely questioned and if the accuser is found to be lying, the accuser will receive the punishment intended for the accused. Notice that. In this way, you will cleanse such evil from among you. In other words, you're not going to have anybody that's falsely accusing people. They're going to think about it. Verse 20 says, those who hear about it will be afraid to do such an evil thing again. You must never show pity. Your rule should be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. If anything, this rule says be consistent, be fair, and be just. A second purpose was to prevent excessive punishment based on personal vengeance and anger retaliation. There's an interesting story found in the fourth chapter of Genesis where one of Adam's descendants, we know him as Lamech, Lamech said to his two wives one day, listen to me, my wives, I have killed a young man who attacked me and wounded me. 
In other words, he just attacked me, but I killed him. In verse 24, he says, if anyone who, uh, who kills Cain is to be punished seven times, then anyone who takes revenge against me will be punished 77 times. In other words, I'm really going to get even with them. Folks, this law made sure that the punishment always matched the crime and did not exceed the harm done by the offense itself. But there's another reason. A third reason is that it was also given to specifically stop informal, self-appointed, vigilante retribution. If you study the Bible, you'll find that in Exodus 21 through Exodus 23, it deals entirely with God's provision for Israel's civil law as do similar teachings in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And what you'll find is that punishment was sometimes carried out by the victim. However, the trial and the sentencing was always the responsibility of duly appointed judges and or groups of people that represented the body of citizens. Interesting. MacArthur says the law of an eye for an eye was a just law because it matched punishment to the offense. It was a merciful law because it limited the innate propensity of the human heart to seek retribution beyond an offense, beyond what the offense deserved. It was also a beneficial law because it protected society by restraining wrongdoing. I've lived long enough to know that in the heat of the moment and because of us being selfish creatures, we're always tempted to get more than just even. That's why I got me a ball bat that time. Am I right? I think I am. Human anger and resentment demands the, the, the sort of retaliation that Lamech bragged about getting. In all honesty, seldom if ever is human vengeance satisfied with exact justice. You see, self usually wants a pound of flesh for an ounce of offense. Our personal inability to match punishment to the crime is the very reason why God said vengeance is mine. Leave it to me. Deuteronomy 32, 35 says, I will take vengeance, the Lord says. I will repay those who deserve it. In due time, their feet will slip. Their day of disaster will arrive and their destiny will overtake them. Uh, it's repeated again in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, Paul says, do your part to live in peace with everyone as much as is possible. He says, dear friends, never revenge yourself. Leave that to God for it is written, I will take vengeance and I will repay those who deserve it, says the Lord. So when I studied this passage this week, it's very clear to me that vengeance and retribution belong to God. That's what the Bible says. Throughout the Bible, we're told that God has commanded us to love our enemies. Romans chapter 12, verse 20 says, Instead, do what the scripture says. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink and they will be ashamed of what they have done to you. I, I saw something just briefly the other day. I wish I saw more of it. It was, uh, I was on Fox. It was about uh, go hug someone who's a part of ISIS. <laughs> I didn't get to see the whole thing. I don't know how that turned out. But uh, it was rather interesting to think that. I mean, Jesus says that. 
Folks, listen, nowhere in Scripture are we told to personally act outside the law. Think about that. The perimeters of the law. We are commanded to live within the law of the land and according to God's law. And we're even told to go an extra mile to show the kindness of Christ. Tony Evans says the biblical role of civil government is to maintain a safe, just, and righteous environment for freedom to flourish. Biblical civil government is a supposed to spend its time and energy removing tyranny from the marketplace and producing harmony in society. In other words, promoting and administering justice, protecting law-abiding citizens, and punishing the lawless. The job of civil government is to maintain justice, protect freedom, and defend its citizens. Amen? Amen. Now, you and I live in America, and we understand that state and federal government also has the authority to establish laws whereby individual citizens can be a part of protecting themselves and others. Our Constitution says in the Second Amendment that a well-regulated militia being necessary to secure the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's what the... What the Constitution says, even in our state, it says pretty much the same things, that we have a right to bear arms and it shall not be infringed. Folks, laws are important, amen? We've got to have laws, and especially God's laws, and even state and federal laws. The principle is important. But notice the shameful perversion of the rabbinic tradition, and I want to say this to you so that you get the context of why Jesus said what he said. Again, I, I say this, nowhere in scriptures are we told to personally act outside of the law. And that is exactly what rabbinic tradition had been doing for years. In their day, each man had been permitted, as it seems, to be his own judge, jury, and executioner. God's law had been turned into a personal license and, and civil justice had been perverted into personal vengeance. Instead of exercising the law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth as a limit on punishment, they had conveniently used it as a mandate for punishment. And I hate to say it, but throughout history, so many times it's been misused that way. God never meant this law to be a personal license for revenge. Never. Never. When you look at verse 39, following on through verse 42, you see the spiritual perspective of this divine truth. Let's read it again. He says, if an eye is injured, injure the eye of the person who did it. If the tooth is knocked out, knock out the tooth of the person who did it. But I say, don't resist an evil person. If you're slapped on the right cheek, turn the other too. If you're ordered to court, and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat as well. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. To understand this passage, you have to realize that Jesus was trying to set things straight so he clearly rebuts the Pharisees' misinterpretation and he forbids personal revenge. He does not, however, teach as many have claimed 
that no stand is to be taken against evil and that evil behavior should just be allowed to run its course and be free. Jesus and the apostles did on many occasions oppose evil and various forms with various forms and resources. For instance, John chapter 2, verse 13. John writes, it was time for the annual Passover celebration. And Jesus went to Jerusalem and, and in the temple area he saw merchants selling cattle and sheep and, and doves of, for sacrifices and he saw money changers behind the count, their counters. And Jesus made a whip from some ropes and he chased them out all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the oxen and scattered the money changers' coins all over the floor and he turned over their tables. And then going over to the people who sold doves. He told them, get these things out of here. Don't turn my father's house into a marketplace. Friends, Jesus refused to tolerate the profaning of the temple. James even says that we're to resist the devil and all of his wickedness and evilness. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse nine, don't just pretend that you love others, really love them, hate what is wrong and stand on the side of the good. There is an interesting passage where Paul tells us of some of the danger that he faced while serving the Lord in ministry. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. It says that Alexander the coppersmith had done me much harm. We don't know how much harm. We don't know what kind of harm it was, whether it was bodily harm or if he just spoke against him and was slandering him. But it says that the Lord will judge him for what he has done. Paul was going to leave it with God. But Paul warned the others. He said, be careful of him. In other words, protect yourself, guard yourself. Be on the lookout for this man. He said, the very first time that I was brought before the judge, no one stood with me. Everyone had abandoned me. I hoped it would, uh, will not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and gave me strength that I might preach the good news in all its fullness for all the Gentiles to hear. And he saved me from certain death. Paul says in verse 18, yes, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To God be the glory forever and ever, amen. You know, Paul knew that no enemy, whether it was human or demonic, was going to be able to keep him out of heaven. He knew he was going to make it to heaven no matter what happened in his life. He knew that there were many times that the Lord had intervened and spared his life from be, being taken. But, but like all of us, Paul also knew that one day his work on earth was going to be finished and his life was going to end. And in that moment, he was going to be ushered into the presence of God. He knew that. So he didn't worry about his life. He lived it for the Lord. Paul wrote, in 2 Corinthians, yes, we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these bodies. How many of you want to be away from your body? Y'all don't want to go to heaven? <laughs> I'd like to trade this one in today, amen? <laughs> one day I will. He said, rather be away from these bodies for then we'll be at home with the Lord. I would trade this life for Jesus today in a heartbeat. Folks, until that time comes where we go to be with the Lord 
May it be your goal to live like Jesus. May it be all of our goal to live like the Lord. He lived with godly kindness in a way that transcended all of this tit for tat, personal retribution, you know, where one insult is traded for another insult. Jesus even went to the extra mile to express the love of God. Isn't that what he did on the cross? But God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's love, folks. He did take a stand, though, for what was right and just, but he refused to swap those insults. In fact, Isaiah says when he was brought before those who accused him, he was as silent as a lamb. He didn't speak up. He just represented God. Folks, it is our responsibility to make a difference, a kingdom difference in a dark, dark world, and especially in our nation. It's time for the church to stand up. If, if we don't stand up and do something, America's just going to be in more trouble than it's in. I think we're the only hope this country has. I don't put my hope in presidents or governors or, or any legislative body out there. The church was put on this earth and left on this earth to make a difference and an impact on culture and society. Guys, we got to do it. We got to stop playing church and start being the body of Christ. We got to make a difference. Well, what kind of difference can I make? Can I just say we can all make a difference? Do we really believe that? We can. We can make a difference. One precious soul at a time. I was reading Dr. Tony Evans the other day, and he, wrote the, he, he said these words, wrote them down. He said, listen to this. The church is supposed to be where the values of eternity operate in history so that history sees what God looks like when heaven is operating on earth. Ooh. He said the job of the church is not to adopt the culture or to merely assess and analyze the culture, but to set heaven within the context of culture so that culture can see God at work in the midst of the activities and the conflicts of men. God has taken something very precious to him and he's created it and he's left it here and he said, let the world see who I am and I wanna, I wanna shine through you so it can. I was reading the other day and it appears that sociologists tell us that even the most introverted individual will impact and influence 10,000 lives in their lifetime. Did you hear that? You might say, well, I, I, I can't talk. I can't talk. I, I'm just, you know, I'm quiet. I'm shy. You will influence 10,000 people in your lifetime. So guess what? You can make a difference you will impact others. There are people out there that are watching you and if they like what they see, then they will listen to you. You've also heard me say, listen, 
People are watching you and they're making up their mind about God based on what they see you do and how you live. We can make a difference. I challenge you with these words. They're not mine, but they're good words. Live your life in such a way that those who know you but don't know God will come to know God because they know you. Did you hear that? Live your life in such a way that those who know you but don't know God will come to go know God because they know you. That's what Jesus did. And that's what he's empowered us to do. You can make an impact on your neighbor. You can make an impact on your kids. Kids, you can make an impact on your parents. We can demonstrate the love of Christ to everybody if we'll first let Christ be Lord in us and then let him live through us. Church, realize you are the physical body of Christ on this earth. And if the world is going to see God, they're going to see it through you first. That is our task. That is our responsibility. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. And I say this humbly. Thank you, Lord, for grace and mercy. Because there's not a person in this room, no person that's ever lived outside of you that has not traded insult for insult that has not injured people or harmed people in retaliation for what maybe they've done to us. We're all guilty, Lord. We're all guilty. Father, I thank you for grace and mercy because through your grace and mercy, we find forgiveness. We find the opportunity, Lord, for a second chance to know you and live for you and and God, to, to go back and try to live a life that's pleasing to you and Lord in tune with the way we've been created. Thank you for the church. Thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ that seek to be Christ in a dark world. God, there are some here today that are lost that need you. Save their soul. Help them, Lord, to desire you more than anything. And there are others, Lord, that already belong to you, but we're struggling, God, with life because so many times self gets in the way of the kingdom agenda. Please, God, today, stir our hearts. Make us something different. Change us. Help us to be Christ in a dark world. God, help us to do it today, not put it off. For today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of change. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit that moves, draws, and changes us into the image of your Son. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's stand and let's respond to God as he leads. Let the Spirit lead you to be obedient today.